Hey, Should Be Alive fans, this is Ashley Korslin. Thank you so much for listening to our six-part series about the life and death of Nikki Kuhnhausen. We truly appreciate your continued support of our local journalism. We have a special bonus episode that features the perspective of the judge in David Bogdanov's trial. It is extremely rare to get an opportunity like this. As a reporter, I've covered crime and the justice system for 15 years now. And in my career, I can't ever recall a time where I had the chance to interview a sitting judge, especially one who presided over a murder trial. When Clark County Superior Court Judge David Gregerson sat down with us for an interview, it was instantly apparent how much this case has impacted him personally. You'll remember in Episode 6, Judge Gregerson delivered an emotional speech to the court during David's sentencing, and he talked about the profound impact Nikki's death has had on the community. It's a case Judge Gregerson says he will never be able to forget because of all the evidentiary pieces that had to align, but also the people it took to even bring this case to trial, let alone result in a guilty verdict. Here's our interview. Your Honor, thanks for talking with us today. Um, Good morning. Tell me, start with your name and just give me the factual background on on your position here. All right. My name is David E. Gregerson. I'm a Clark County Superior Court judge, one of 11 judges in this courthouse uh, in a county of about 500,000 people. If you divide that by 11, it's roughly 45,000 people per Superior Court judge. Superior Court is our court of general jurisdiction in Washington, which means that the majority of the cases sort of start and fall under our umbrella. And then carved out, uh, carved out of that jurisdiction would be a limited jurisdiction court. So, for example, misdemeanors, smaller dollar cases, those could be heard in our district court. But superior court ranges from the most serious criminal cases to uh, real estate disputes to political and elections disputes to divorces um, and uh, family uh, uh, disputes, child custody, all those things are in superior court. Is this job a calling? How does one day after day see the emotionally um, fraught types of cases day in and day out and want to keep doing this? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, in theory, anybody with a legal training can be a judge and has the basic skills and tools to be a judge. What what makes a good judge, I think, is that skill set of intangibles and indefinables that people know when they see. And for me, it, it, I always admired, we had excellent judges here in Clark County. They were mentors and, um, and helped me. And when I started to do some substitute judging, uh, when they were shorthanded, then some people encouraged me. They said, Hey, I think you might do a good job of this. You got to seriously consider this. But the, um, the variety, you know, this is obviously an exceptional case in 10 years. Um, not every day uh, or, or week is as interesting or uh, as sensational or as high stress or high stakes as a case like this. But it comes with the territory and and it is very, um, I'd say it's rewarding personally and professionally. What is your first recollection of the case involving David Bogdanoff and Nikki Kuhnhausen? Well, my first recollection would be the news reports of the missing teenager. And that was from the summer of 2019, I believe it was. So when when she went missing, that, of course, was a story here, and it was reported in our local media and on the local TV stations. Um, and, you know, I remember thinking to myself, um, oh, this, this is a bad situation. 
Um, and we're well trained and well versed on things such as human trafficking. And so the natural inclination is to worry is, was there some foul play? Was, uh, um, was she taken and, uh, trafficked somehow? What's going to happen? How is this going to end? And then, um, learning that she was trans, you know, probably added that extra layer of dread that, um, uh, because at least anecdotally, you can cite all kinds of statistics, but anecdotally, you know, the worry is that um, this could be a, a bad situation and it might not end very well. So that's how it started was the summer of 2019. Then there was, um, of course, we get busy with our work. There's not much publicly reported mm-hmm. and there's not much, there's nothing going on in court. There's no open case. It's just news that's out there. And then fast forward to December, I believe it was, first or second week in December, and that's when the body was found. And, of course, that was a big news splash. And then it translated to, oh, this was the case, the missing person's case from the summer. Oh, boy, we've got a six-month-old uh, body. Um, what what are they going to be able to learn and find out and and what actually happened? And we knew the location was up in a remote area. I have some personal familiarity with it. Um, and then very shortly, I think within two weeks or so, then it became a, a case that came into our court. Right, because initially it was a largely circumstantial case. The state had, had presented um, the cell tower data linking the suspect, the defendant's cell phone to where the remains were found. Um, they had some other information through they gleaned through the police interview, but really they had um, a largely very circumstantial case. Very circumstantial case. I think they had a medical examiner's opinion as to the cause of death, mm-hmm. which was strangulation with the ligature, and the cell phone data and the last known connection with this particular defendant. But there was not any real strong or direct evidence going towards the cause of death or directly eyewitnessing uh, something to that extent. So it was it was definitely a circumstantial case coming in the door. What was your thought on that when you see, um, when you're looking at how this case may play out and it's very high profile, but it is circumstantial, before we knew David Bogdanov was going to claim self-defense, um, did this seem like an extraordinary feat for the state to accomplish at that point? Yeah, my initial impression was, uh, I suppose, one of, oh boy, I, this is going to be uh, requiring some heavy lifting if the state is going to con- get a conviction on this. Uh, a lot of missing person cases, number one, never gets solved or a body is never... So let's assume a body is found. That's statistic number one, which is not particularly good. Statistic number two is that they, quote unquote, solve the case or they identify somebody that they think has done it. Number three, they have to meet the standards to bring a charge in court according to what lawyers and prosecutors um, are required to uh, adhere to. And then number four, you have to get through all the minefield of pretrial and actually get to a trial, put it in front of a jury, and to secure a conviction. And these cases, and I think this is why the, the people in the family and the trans community were, were rightfully um, anxious and apprehensive because the track record and the sheer odds, it would be like me driving to Eugene and there are 30 off ramps between here and Eugene on which my car could go. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a a good metaphor for a case like this. There are perhaps 30 different avenues where a case could crash or fail Mm -hmm. or not make it to the finish line. How did David Bogdanov uh, deciding to claim self-defense affect, I guess, how the trial would play out, how the state or the defense would present its cases? Well, there's a procedure in Washington where 
in advance of the trial, the defense is required to notify what the nature of the trial is going to be about. So a few weeks before the trial in August of 2021, um, he, uh, his attorneys formally disclosed that their defense would be one of self-defense. So in my mind, I thought to myself, well, it, it appears that there was an interaction between two people. And there's an old adage, if uh, two people can keep a secret if one of them is dead. So how were we going to know what happened? And there were very likely only two witnesses to the final moments of Nikki's life. Nikki was gone. So he had substantial uh, license and room, knowing trials the way I do, to be able to argue um, uh, as to what happened in their interaction. And then the notion of self-defense put everyone on, no on notice that there was going to be some assertion of some aggressive act by Nikki that would justify uh, uh, the killing, that he in fact conceded and acknowledged that he took her life, mm -hmm. but was invoking or asking the jury to excuse uh, the, the killing by something recognized under our laws. Have you ever experienced a defendant claiming the so-called panic defense in a courtroom? Have you even heard of that in the state of Washington? You know, I have not. Um, that was a subject that came up, and I know there were some legislative changes from it. But no, I've never had a case where somebody actually tried to excuse their behavior based upon a claim that um, in perhaps an intimate moment or, or something with some uh, uh, sexual connotation that they became so shocked or outraged that they became violent and that therefore it's uh, somehow excused because... The person was trans and not as they assumed the person would be in terms of their gender. No, I've never had that personally come up. I know that in this case it got conflated in different news reports and a lot of people assumed that that what was is what was happening in this courtroom. I don't exactly. know if you're able to speak to that or clear up any confusion on that. Yes, it, um, and I think that's a very good point because it's easy, and there, there's certainly some overlap sure. uh, philosophically with those two concepts, but they are standalone legal defenses. And the so-called panic defense, I wasn't even aware of that. I'd never even heard of that. I don't know if it's been tried in any other jurisdictions. But in theory, an attorney could, uh, in the absence of controlling or persuasive case law that closed the door on that, they could, in theory, try to argue that to the jury and convince a jury that just because of who that person is, that their gender is, shall we say, a non-traditional or non-binary, that that somehow excuses uh, an act of violence. Um, in this case, the allegation was self-defense. So Mr. Bogdanov asserted that he was attacked uh, with a firearm, his own firearm, within a car that they were in at the time, and that that attack somehow justified what resulted in being a strangulation with a telephone charging cable. Let's talk about the trial itself. It was fraught with dramatic moments from start to finish. Um, as someone who watched it from an online feed, and you could feel the tense moments through the computer screen at my office when I watched it play out. There were, I think I counted five motions for mistrial on behalf of the defense. There um, were issues with the jury um, where the, the, the presiding juror sent you a letter about possibly excusing a juror who was refusing to deliberate. Um, can you talk about some of the standout moments or the moments that really um, are solidified in your mind that, wow, this was quite the process from start to finish? It, it was um, 
an extraordinary process from my standpoint. It, it's a case I'll never forget, and I will take it to my grave, and I'll certainly take it to my retirement. But it, it's the case of a lifetime, and there were so many factors. And I would categorize the factors into two. There's sort of the, the expected, usual run-of-the-mill sort of curveballs that we might get in a case like this, and then there were those that are outside the box. And as a judge, you have to be ready to respond to either on fairly short notice and be adept and be legally accurate, and most of all, fair in content and fair in appearance all the way around to, to all sides to the party, uh, all sides of the uh, dispute. So the first curveball was the outbreak of COVID in that summer. And we had suspended jury trials in the state of Washington and here in Clark County. We had uh, done that for several months. We thought we could safely resume jury trials. And so we did, I think, in the early summer of that uh, year, 2021. And then we had a wave of COVID cases coming in locally. So even one week before the Bogdanov trial, we had a mistrial in a different department here in our courthouse because of juror exposure to COVID. So we had the concern, could we safely put on a trial, given the fact that we were going to have some 30 or 40 witnesses, Mm -hmm. jurors, a gallery packed with people in closed space in violation of social distancing expectations and standards. So that alone, to be able to pull off a two-week jury trial in the midst of this rising wave of COVID, and a lot of resources had been committed in terms of time and expense, and we could have gotten 99% of the way in a case, and one particular instance of COVID would have meant, boom, mistrial, back to the drawing board. We start from scratch. We've also got a defendant who's been in custody for a full year and a half, and you have a right to a speedy trial as a defendant. Uh, that is your constitutional right, and to be, you can't be held in jail indefinitely. If the state has evidence against you, bring it forward, prove your case, make the conviction, or go home. Mm-hmm. And so these are all considerations that uh, any judge and I had to consider. Then you get into the curveballs at trial themselves, and we had, and it was a bit like a rodeo, and these are the instances that I would call more outside the box. We had an incident with a uh, local TV camera that accidentally and very briefly showed uh, one of the jurors leaving the jury box despite a very clear instruction and prohibition. And again, that risks uh, a mistrial, and there was a motion for a mistrial based on that. So that was a concern, the media coverage and the safety and sanctity and integrity of that. Uh, and then it was like riding a wild bronco for those, those two weeks with all the witnesses, with the sheer volume of information coming in. It was a bit like drinking from a fire hose. So many witnesses, so much information, not all of it presented linear or chronological. Mm-hmm. And as I was listening to the trial and managing the trial, I was wondering, are they going to be able to tie all this together? The jurors are getting a lot of information. And if the prosecutors do a good job, they will find a way to circle that in closing arguments and bring all of it together cohesively in a way that could be understood and uh, uh, persuasive on behalf of the state's case. Uh, so it was going all throughout the two weeks building up, um, very intense. We had uh, attorneys get a little tense when they're in a two-week trial as well, and tempers can flare a little bit, and the judge's tempers can sometimes flare, believe it or not. Uh, but then we also had issues right up until the case went to the jury. I believe it went to the jury perhaps on a Wednesday afternoon, about 3.30 p.m., and no sooner than minutes after the jury had gone back into the jury room, we were notified that one of the jurors was was quite ill and couldn't even get out of the bathroom. Because of that, we designate and bring in a couple of spare jurors for a trial like this so that we are protected from having one 
get knocked out. Mm -hmm. So uh, we called immediately juror number 13, who was still in his car, hadn't arrived home yet. We said, you have to turn around, come back in, um, and uh, put him back into duty. We called the jury in. We said, freeze everything. Don't talk about the case until we get the substitute juror back in. That juror showed up, and then they started deliberating. Uh, And so if that wasn't enough, then the next day we got the note uh, regarding one of the jurors, and there were some concerns the jury had asked that perhaps they wanted to fire or or replace one of the jurors that was with them because of some perceived intransigence or uh, non-cooperation. And again, that puts a judge into a minefield because we have to be very, very careful. We cannot be seen, we cannot actually or appear to tip the scale in any one way or the other as to how those proceedings are to go. We have some some very strict guidelines and a tightrope to walk there. And the more a judge opens his mouth, the more he's walking out on the plank of risk of, of having a mistrial. You all had to be very careful. You, the attorneys, um, everyone. I remember watching that play out and you were discussing how do we even go about asking what's wrong back in that jury room because you, you couldn't. It's, we're not supposed to what's called invade the province of the jury. We are, they are both physically separated in a private room and metaphorically completely cloistered off. We, we can't hear what they do in there. We can't see or participate or change or do anything. That is a very sacred process under our constitutional form of trial by jury. And it's one which, you know, good judges take very seriously. So we essentially reiterated some of the same instructions that we had given to them before. I think this instruction starts with something like, it is your duty to deliberate in this case, Mm -hmm. and sort of read over the same familiar ground, which the attorneys agreed was the safest harbor on which to go. And they went back in, and uh, I think you've maybe talked to one of the jurors, but as I understood it, they... uh, it seems like they, they started from scratch and they did some inventive and clever things. They went through a reenactment where they took the witness accounts and tried to determine how plausible the defense was. And, um, and then ultimately they came back with their verdict. To get all the way that far in after two weeks and to possibly have this moment where everyone was concerned about a mistrial or a hung jury, what does that actually look like for the family members if that event did happen, if there was a mistrial, you have to start all the way back over and you put everyone back through that, that anguish and the testimony. That's a big ordeal. It is a huge ordeal. And that's why the management of this is, is such an awesome responsibility. And frankly, why I needed a a little bit of vacation after this trial, because it was, uh, the, the tension and the consequences and stakes are so high. Mm-hmm. But it's not just the family. It's the attorneys and the witnesses. You risk witnesses vanishing or evidence vanishing or disappearing. And so to hold that trial together and you're 99% of the way up until the jury deliberation and then you get this curveball in the jury deliberation, the the expense, the stress, I can tell you every attorney was hanging on every word. Everybody in the gallery was, myself. And I was, um, of course, concerned that uh, could this trial be salvaged and could we get uh, a verdict properly or was this this case fatally doomed? Do you get nervous when you're about to read a verdict? Do you get that um, just on a personal level, like the butterflies a little bit because you don't know what you're about to see when you open that verdict form? Yeah, of course. <laughs> the, um, the It's always a dramatic moment and TV emphasizes this um, w- with made for TV dramas, but when the jury comes in, 
we don't know. There are some parlor games that attorneys engage in. Some of them say, well, did the, did the jurors look at the defendant? Or did the, if they don't look at him, that means they're going to convict him. I don't know if any of that's true or just just um, uh, coffee talk. So, of course, it's a, it's a very dramatic moment uh, included for me because I don't know which way the case is going. Right. Um, and so until they actually hand that paper to me to, you know, to read those out, uh, nobody knows. And and uh, it's the jury's case. It's not the judge's case. It's not anybody else's case except 12 people who volunteer from the community. Not volunteer, but they're conscripted by their constitutional duty. And that's what makes it such a magic process. It's it's one of the ultimate acts of democracy in our system. And yeah, it's flawed. And yeah, you hear some uh, wild and unpalatable results sometimes. But I still think it's the worst system in the world except for all the others. So I still think it's it's worth fighting for and worth defending. Absolutely. Um, when you, that moment when you read the verdict, you had given particularly um, straightforward instructions to remain calm, nobody have any outbursts, that sort of thing. Um, how do you feel the courtroom handled when you, when you read the verdict that moment? From my recollection, um, I, I thought we did a pretty good job of controlling throughout the trial the behavior in the gallery and the behavior outside in the hallway. Sometimes, some of that comes with good messaging, both direct and more subtle messaging. I think in the instance of the verdict, it was, I, I probably read a specific instruction that there's to be no outburst. This is not, this is still a court of law, regardless of what the result is. It is the province of the jury and it is the dignity of how this process is going to play out. We're going to receive the verdict and the verdict is what it is. And that's mm-hmm. our system. So, uh, as I recall, there was no, nothing inappropriate or no misbehavior in response to the verdict. I'm sure the, the family and, and, uh, the mother's supporters were, were probably hugely relieved. Uh, his family and, and he and his attorneys, it's, uh, any attorney worth his salt hates losing. The day you hate losing as a trial attorney is the day you ought to hang it up. Mm-hmm. So it's devastating when you lose a case, especially one that you put your heart and soul into and one that goes for two weeks and where the consequences are so high. Right. What what, what was it about this case? You said that you will take this into retirement. You will never forget this. This is a case in a lifetime. What What is it about it that really sticks with you um, professionally, but also just emotionally and as a member of this community? I think because it was such an extraordinary result, given the the challenges to the case as I saw them when it came in the door, the the chances of being able to convict on what seemed like a pretty circumstantial case, of having all the possible possible things that could go wrong, of having a political climate in this country where we're largely divided, and that people could have glommed on to some part of this case that was not really germane to what was alleged and what was alleged on behalf of the defense. So, uh, and, and the fact that it was a very high stakes, highly emotional two week roller coaster of a trial. And we were all pretty tired at the, at the end of it. So all of that and, uh, contributed to, uh, to my sense that this was truly an extraordinary case. And uh, Nikki, uh, you know, went to the same high school that I did here in downtown Vancouver. So, a lot of the evidence and, and some of the street scenes where incidents took place, I can look out the window from the courthouse here, and I grew up in these streets and in this neighborhood. So for me, it, it uh, and, and, you know, anytime you have a 17-year-old, that's just um, 
somebody at risk, somebody vulnerable in the community. Any 17-year-old is at risk and vulnerable. But with the family situation and being trans, the, the challenges and the risks were um, were just enormous. And regardless of those risks or choices or anything like that, nobody deserves to be strangled and, and have their body dumped up on a mountain. Right. During the sentencing, you delivered a very eloquent and, and beautiful monologue to the court I loved how you talked about the dark elements of the case, but also the the bright lights. Um, I, I found that to be very poignant. Can you put that into your own words about why you chose to write about that and speak about that? I had been taking notes during the trial about certain impressions that I had, either intellectual or emotional impressions during certain phases of the case. And then when I finished, I reviewed and looked back at those. Mm-hmm. And because there was this... Um, kind of a political layer to this case because of an ongoing discussion we're having here and across the country about rights of people of different gender or sexual orientation. And obviously there were some, there was a lot of um, presence and advocacy at the bail hearings and emotions were pretty high there. Um, Nikki's mother had um, really good and entirely appropriate support present during the trial for her. That must have been I can't imagine what it would be like to go through this trial and sit there and see pictures on the screen of your child's bones. It just, it had to have been terrible. So, um, you know, some people, the sensational part of this case was, well, it had sex, that he was apparently on the prowl or was looking for sex maybe that morning, and maybe their encounter had some sexual flavor to it, or at least mm-hmm. an expectation by one party of what that was going to amount to. Um I, and especially with what the country is going through, I chose to specifically take a message that I hoped would speak more to a unifying set of values and understandings of our community. So I chose what I'll I'll loosely label as more of a humanist tack, that this is a human being, a 17-year-old human being, and all teenagers do things, but it doesn't excuse uh, or justify any way in being, you know, strangled and, and that. So that was, my intention was to not to take the political component out of it and really focus on the humanism and on the core values, which all Americans, frankly, I think share or should share. And um, back to the, the the bright lights, can you speak to also, it, it took an extraordinary amount of um, diligence and thoughtfulness on behalf of all the players in this case who brought it together. You referenced the bear grass picker. Without Rogelio, this potentially never would have come to be what it is today and closure in, in the sense of the judicial um, aspect of it. Um, the search and rescue teams, the detectives, everyone involved. Talk about how you wrote about them as well. I had, I had watched, and, and I normally loathe these things, but I had watched a true crime uh, series uh, on HBO called The Investigation, and it was... Uh, about a a horrific crime or a homicide in Denmark. And it was really well done, but the way in which it was done focused more on the individuals, the quiet, dignified heroism of just the small people who had a, a small part in the case. And when we had 30 or 40 witnesses in a case like this, and everybody did their job, and they did it not because of some agenda or who Nikki was or wasn't, but they did it because it was just what their job was, whether the, the beargrass picker or the lab technician who processed some results 
or the detective that had to go in and try to solve what was probably going to be a very difficult crime to solve with mm -hmm. uh, difficult circumstances. And it all just sort of came together, at least in the jury's mind, it came together and it made for a persuasive case. And thinking of all those different off-ramps that this case could have taken, and and if he did it, and uh, if he was not found guilty, of course, everybody's heartbroken when there's a, a, a result that feels unjust. And our system is far from perfect, and unjust results happen all the time. So the fact that all these things came together, and and so many people just quietly and professionally did what they were supposed to do, mm -hmm. that's the takeaway from the case. And I was just very humbled and touched to be a part of that. I feel like um, you. There was a moment where you even you seemed to to be emotionally touched in that moment. Um, was that hard for you to continue? Uh, of course, I, I, I wanted to say something, and I was a little afraid of getting away from myself. So I, I put some things down in writing, which I hardly ever do, because I wanted to remain anchored, but yet make the point that I wanted to make. Yeah, um, and you're a parent. Um, exactly. So I'm sure that this speaks to any anyone with a child, um, to anyone anywhere, but especially as a parent. I mean, here you mentioned seeing Lisa. That would be that'd be really hard to see. So, yeah, uh, very tough. And the fact that she sat here through that trial every single day um, and and had to hear some pretty tough stuff mm -hmm. about your own child. I don't care who you are or who that child is. That's um, I respect her and salute her for doing that and for the advocates that helped her to be present for doing that. As a judge, I can't be overcome by sympathy or something on, on one person's, you know, everybody has um, something to say in this case, and my job is to hear everybody's version inside and try to make the call at the end of the day. Yes, true. Were there parts of this trial that surprised you or really stand out or something you learned from moving forward? You know, it's interesting... The, the way, I'm sure there's a, I can't remember what the word is, but the way you hear or learn or perceive a story is kind of fascinating. There's a whole field of science behind this. So for the jurors, when they come in on the first day of jury trial, they're basically knowing, ideally, absolutely nothing. But realistically, if they've heard a media report, they're going to know next to nothing and they're coming in with a blank slate. Believe it or not, a judge is not that far from the blank slate. We've, we've seen the case come in at first appearance, but I have no idea what the police have been doing in terms of their search warrants, mm. developing the case, the evidence, the lab results. So I'm learning real time during the trial as well, while I'm also sitting and managing and doing and fulfilling all my responsibilities and tasks. So, so, um, the, the idea is that you're learning about these things real time as they come on. I, I, I'm particularly fascinated by some of the scientific work. Mm -hmm. The the cell phone tower testimony for me was some of the most riveting testimony that I've ever had in my courtroom, and I wish I could learn more about that. It was an FBI expert who talked about, and it was almost like a Doppler type of technology. That it, uh, There wasn't an exact GPS footprint, but rather there was this interpolation of pieces of mm -hmm. data that that created what amounted to a map up to the site where the body was found. And that was um, one of the uh, sharpest and best prepared um, and, and interesting witnesses I think I've ever heard. Are there other parts I should have asked you, though, like throughout this process that, that, that are obvious things that um, you'd like to speak about that I missed, perhaps? I don't think so, other than... Uh, you know, again, the basic management, uh, and idea. The one blessing was that COVID 
uh, catapulted us forward in terms of our technology for doing a trial over Zoom and over video. Uh, before COVID, you know, we had these rules which well-intentioned, you know, required personal presence and it was very limited in terms of video and broadcast and participation. Because of COVID, it gave me the legal authority to be able to restrict the number of people here in the courtroom and, and largely it was restricted to Nikki's families and supporters and Mr. Bogdanov's family and supporters. Everybody else was provided a link that they could pipe in on and watch it through video. Um, and I think that's, a uh, probably a healthy development. Again, more what we do here should be open to the public and especially a high profile, high interest case like this. It allowed people from the around the world to see how this went down. And, but that also puts a lot of pressure on somebody like myself because I want our product here in Clark County to be absolutely the best it can be. I want us to be able to stand up to any other court in the country or in the world and say, we're proud of the case and the justice that we administer here in Clark County. We're proud of the professionalism, the dedication, the efficiency, and the performance of all the participants. And you still have people um, interested in this case, people requesting copies of the trial, um, DVDs, people wanting to know about the case, national coverage and whatnot to this day. I think part of it may be, and the prosecution did an excellent job of this, was, uh, and they teach attorneys how to do this, and they say to humanize the victim. Mm -hmm. And if all you ever hear is what you see in the paper, a trans 17-year-old was a victim. First thing the prosecution did on the day of trial, put a picture up there of Nikki, and in closing arguments as well. Mm -hmm. And that's powerful. It's effective. It it reminds the jury that this is a real person. This is not some concept. This is not some right. member of a community or a class or a controversy. No, this is a 17-year-old human being that you could see on the street or over at the store or a friend with your kid at the same high school. It could be anybody like that. And I thought they did a fantastic job of that. Do you often get the chance to talk with the members of the jury after a trial. Do you, um, do you even, do you get that chance? Can you do that? How does that work? In, in Washington, we can do that. We have to be circumspect in how much, uh, uh, we do there. Once, once they've delivered their verdict, whatever the verdict is, they're relieved from their, uh, orders about not talking about the case. So they can discuss with the media. They can discuss with friends, family, et cetera. But until that moment when the verdict is reached, they're under fairly strict parameters. Right. So uh, on occasion, I do talk to jurors afterward. It's helpful for me to understand and especially hear from them their feedback about the process or things that um, things that we might, we might do better in the administration of the cases, but also impressions about uh, you know the attorney's performance or, or anything in that uh, in that realm. Did you um, get a sense of um, how they were all feeling after this was all said and done, and you did get to chat with them? I did, and then I saw there was at least one news report um, where several of the jurors spoke to a TV reporter out on the courthouse steps afterward. And I was, uh, I don't want to say I was blown away, but I was absolutely um, impressed and humbled by the seriousness with which they took their responsibility. It was a major case, and they knew it, not because of the profile or for the media coverage, but because... This was somebody in our community. And maybe once in a lifetime you get called into jury duty, the chances of it being a homicide case are infinitesimally small. And they got a chance to do that in a, from a juror's standpoint, what would be a very interesting case. But they absolutely took their duty 
extremely seriously and they followed the instructions as far as I could tell and did what they were supposed to do. And the, and sometimes I share a joke with them. I, I say, you know, there's a, have you heard of that scientific study where they do an analysis and they try to figure out what percentage of the time the jury's got the right answer in a case? I said, do you know what the number is? What's well, 100%? Well, of course, it's 100% because they are the jury. They are the ultimate decision maker on any given right. case. So what they say, for all practical intents and purposes, is the right result. It is justice, whether we like it or not, or whether it's correct or not. You, um, just kind of a fun question, but do, how do you, do you do anything as a pre-trial ritual? Do you have anything that helps you meditate or decompress <laughs> after um, a high-stakes trial like this, before or after? You know, several things. Um, when you go to judicial college, they teach you some of these techniques that sort of keep you balanced. And my my preference is to do something that takes my brain to a completely different space, at least temporarily, especially in the middle of the battle of, a, mm-hmm. of an intense trial. So, And I have some really good earphones. Uh, and so listening to music, um, good music or something different or interesting is a good way for me to do that. I'm kind of an amateur ukulele. I teach myself, <laughs> and so my assistant sometimes hears, hears me playing in the back there. So it just takes your takes your brain to a completely different place while the, the the law part can rest and get ready for going back into court. Dare I ask what kind of music you listen to? Oh, I'm pretty eclectic, so I'll listen to anything. I, my, my kids are both in college, so I usually ask them for some, give me some fresh stuff to listen to. I like <laughs> Pink Martini or classic oh, yeah. rock or, or anything in between and around. Yeah. And you took, um, you had to kind of get away, take a vacation, take a, a trip away after this case. How was that decompression time? What did you do? I think, I think I flew out of town for a few days. Um, but it was, it was just a relief. You know, I, 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 got off the grid, so to speak, and just did some different things, decompressed, enjoyed some good food and wine, <laughs> uh, just do something yeah. uh, different. And um, and then we had the sentencing hearing, which was a couple of weeks after that. But it was it was a huge relief, especially. And then I think we, we had a jury trial suspension within a week or two after our trial finished because of COVID. So we knew that we'd sort of threaded this needle. We'd, we'd wow. sort of pulled off getting this trial done in the midst of all of this happening without a public health incident in the courtroom. And that was uh, a relief. That was remarkable in itself. Mm-hmm. Just like you said, considering all the witnesses and, and the people in the room, um, had you, um, so about 10 years you've been in this position in this um, county, mm-hmm. had you had many um, like murder jury trials such as this one in your experience, or is this quite rare? This sort of case. Everyone is different. I would say, on average, you get a an actual case that goes to a jury trial, a homicide case, maybe every year or two. Okay. Uh, most of them will plead out or get dismissed or somehow otherwise resolved. But to have one, and and that was, I guess, unique about this case is I had a high degree of prediction right from the get-go. Oh, this, I, I thought to myself, this case is going to trial. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just one of those cases. The stakes are too high. There's there's very little middle ground that the prosecution could have offered uh, or the defense. It was it was kind of an all-or-none case. And so I, I predicted right away, oh, this this is almost certainly going to go to a trial. I, and I, feel free to not answer this. I don't know if you can speak to this, but during the sentencing, you had given Mr. Bogdanov an opportunity to 
say something, to express anything, um, speak to the court, and he chose not to. Did that surprise you, or would you have expected otherwise? I, nothing surprises me, uh, and and there are a variety of reasons why defendants either choose to or choose not to interact with the court. Mm-hmm. Um, it's entirely up to them. It it can change a judge's determination on sentencing. Sometimes judges will look for signs of sincere, you know, remorse mm-hmm. um, and contrition. Uh, but judges are also aware that those things are easy to say. There's an old Judge Lodge who used to be in this very courtroom when I was a young attorney. Uh, I witnessed a hearing and I thought he was uh, going to throw this guy in jail for the weekend for not paying child support. And at the last minute, he was able to come up with a couple hundred dollars. And we got done with the case and and I just said hello to him. And I said, oh, I thought you were going to put that guy in jail for the weekend. He says, no, it's it's amazing. People come up with money and religion at the 11th hour. So uh, you have to be circumspect when when somebody says something at sentencing. Sure. Is there a particular message that you will take away from this case or that you hope it sends to the the greater community at the end of the day? Boy, I'll leave that to I'll leave that to other people. I'm I'm actually learning more things about the case all the time, including from your podcast. Uh, I, again, I'm not the the Wizard of Oz who knows everything that's going on behind the scenes. So some of your interviews and things are sure. illuminating. Um, but I hope uh, I hope that this case is um, serves as an inspiration for all those people who were on the list of, of the witnesses, you know, from the crime lab technician mm-hmm. to the detective to the people who were up there documenting uh, the remains or uh, et cetera. I, I think there's an unspoken um, excellence that's often out there, that, and it doesn't make the news very often because it's not sexy or glamorous right. or it doesn't fit 140 characters on a social media tweet. Um, but there's just a lot of really good people out there who are working hard and professionally and diligently uh, performing their tasks. And and my message and my takeaway from all this is that those people sometimes deserve, and they should in this particular case, pat themselves on the back for, for the, the, how the trial went down, the excellence of it, and, uh, and the result that came about, that a jury was able to get the case and render its decision. Well, Your Honor, thank you so much for your time and answering all these questions and giving us this input and kind of peek behind the curtain of this um, sacred process. It was, it was, uh, like I say, an uh, unforgettable case. I probably won't do this again with anyone, but this was one that just was, uh, there was something special and unique about it. And I'm very glad that there's some coverage that dives deeper into it. I think it's an, uh, an extraordinary story. That was our full interview with Clark County Superior Court Judge David Gregerson. Thanks for listening. If you haven't done so yet, please leave us a rating or review. It really does help. And a reminder, if you liked Should Be Alive, we hope you'll check out our award-winning true crime podcasts, Urge to Kill and The Yellow Car, both available wherever you're listening to this show.